and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the first week of November. We thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again and hope all of you survived your Halloween, that you managed to have a good and safe Halloween, however you celebrated in your responsible manners, and that you did not gorge too much on candy and you have paced it out through the whole month of November, you know, until it really gets cold and then you have good reason to hibernate and just just sleep it all off. Just don't worry about whatever pounds it adds. That's just adding to your winter coat. Get ready <laughs> for the pending cold season. So, yeah. What an odd way to put it for a human being. Hey, this is what works for me. <laughs> Fair. Uh, but yes, I'm the second voice on this program. This week I am Dennis, the man who denounces poor Sean Connery impressions in the wake of his passing. <laughs> I uh, as you may have heard the news that Sean Connery passed, and uh, anytime I heard uh, any sort of uh, lighthearted personality talking about it, they obviously immediately went into a very terrible Sean Connery impression, because everyone's got a bad Sean Connery impression, and uh, uh, they just uh, did great disservice to his memory by by doing that. It's it's wrong, I say wrong. How wrong is it, do you say? Well, oh, I, I say it's very wrong indeed, but uh, uh, I suppose it couldn't be that wrong, so long, as it, so long as it's done well. Done well or done not well? What say you? <laughs> Anyways, no, no, I'm... There's only so long you can keep that up. Yeah, no, I can't keep that up. It's, it's, it's a dumb played out joke, but uh, yeah, he'll, I mean... Yeah, I mean, ninety for, years old. Ninety years old, and he'll forever be remembered. In I mean, for, for the this is this is kind of a stupid thing. For as much as he did in his career, I think for a lot of people our age, he's going to be most known for "You're the Man Now, Dog." <laughs> if not "You're the Man Now, Dog," which was a very prevalent joke on the early internet in the early two thousands internet, yeah. Um, that just spread like wildfire was a great go-to joke or link to someone. Yeah. Uh, in the early days of chat messaging, MSN Messenger and uh, ICQ and the ICQ, such. ICQ, AIM, whatever else. Exactly. Those, those early days of messaging services, way before the Facebooks and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what we had, kids. So uh, it's either the, the You're the Man Now dog, which was... If you're not familiar with it, I I believe it's preserved on uh, the Internet Archive. Oh, YTMND is still a site that you I think you can still make new ones. Like, it became a whole community. Oh, really? Yeah, like YTMND.com. Basically, it became a platform where you just typed whatever you wanted in, put whatever background image that got layered in, and then put whatever audio clip on that you wanted to be looped. So, like, it's a legit, like, thing. Like, for a while, it kind of became a little bit played out, but... uh Overall, yeah, it's it's definitely still a thing. Like the original one is still up on YTMND, and it got it. The in, in case you're wondering where you're the man now, dog came from, it was from it was a very very brief clip from a movie called Finding Forrester, which I don't think I've seen. <laughs> I don't know anyone that. I mean, I'm, I don't. I can't say I don't know anyone that has seen that movie here, because I'm sure there's people that have seen that movie. It was a very Critically acclaimed movie, I believe, when it came out, but I never saw the movie. And it's funny that, you know, this critically acclaimed movie about, you know, what was it supposed to be about? It was like a some hardened old, like, maybe racist teacher 
I think Sean Connery played a, if I, if I recall correctly, uh, don't quote me on this, but my general impression of the movie from back then, uh, upon its release in the late nineties was that Sean Connery played uh, a writer who's been in seclusion for years and years and years, wrote a, a novel, uh, that got really famous, has been in seclusion for years. No one's really seen or heard from him, hasn't produced any works. And there's an Afri- African American uh, youth who's in college and is accused, I believe, of plagiarism and, uh, Ultimately, I believe he has to prove his innocence, and he essentially has to bring Sean Connery to his class, and Sean Connery, they strike up a friendship and a sort of mentorship, and at one point, I believe when uh, the, the main youth character in the movie does well, that's how Sean Connery phrases him, by exclaiming, you're the man now, dog, which is insane, and it does sound racist, no matter how you kind of strike it, like, how, no matter how you think about it, right? I'm not the only one that thinks that. In hindsight, yes. <clears throat> In the time, it was just funny. Yeah. And the internet took it and just made a ridiculous loop of that and led to you're the man now dog dot com. Yeah. I definitely remember the first time I saw you're the man now dog. And I feel like I laughed for a solid 10 minutes because it was like, <laughs> I feel like it was the first instance I ever came across of the low effort meme that was just like, <laughs> Like, it was both high and low effort at the same time. Like, it was a whole website that was just literally this shitty website that had, like, bad text effects on it. And it just literally said it was you're the man now dog dot com. The only thing on the website was, like, these words, you're the man now dog, with, like, some layered, like, tiled picture of, like, Sean Connery in the background pointing angrily at something. And they just hear, you're the man now dog. You're the man now dog. You're the man now. It's over and over again. And I think I was just like, this is the stupidest thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> like, it was the first instance of like, you know, like they went through all of this effort to buy the domain name, put this website together and everything. And it was just such a one note joke. It wasn't like it was. Yeah, I don't know. I can't think of any any earlier instance than that of like the like the the one note joke that was like both high and low effort at the same time. Yeah, uh, I, I certainly uh, am struggling to think of uh, another good example as well. Uh, were you like me, where when you, when you came across "You're the Man Now, Dog," you'd laugh, you'd let it run, and then after a while, it would kind of lose, you know, not be as funny, but you'd still let it go, and then it got funnier again. Yeah, because it's still going. The only other site that I can think of from that same kind of era that had a similar effect was Zombo.com. Which was just... Oh, com. It was the same kind of idea, except it was like... It was just nothing. It was like shapes, or like circles kind of blipping on a screen with the word Zombo.com. And a guy who sounded like a Pacific Islander, just basically, you know, saying like, Welcome to Zombo.com. Or he, he said Zombo.com. Yes. Like, Welcome to Zombo.com. The infinite is possible at Zombo.com. You can do anything at Zombo.com. It was just... Empty, like, promise phrases like that, <laughs> just getting more and more ridiculous. It was like, I think a three minute loop of just like, like, he would, like, I, cause I download, I managed to figure out how to download the audio from the website once, and it was a three minute clip that didn't repeat until the <laughs> three minute mark. So this guy, they got him to just say stuff for three minutes. 
<laughs> until it finally <laughs> looped. And it just felt like it was an infinite number of things when you're watching it on loop. Because three minutes is a long time to notice. And it takes a while for you to, like... Like, I was just wondering, I'm like, is this, like, an intro to something? Like, is it going to go to anything? No. It was just a single shockwave flash site or page that just, like, had nothing else on it but this stupid audio loop of this this guy saying things. So... And I feel that like, that one came after you, the man now dog.com. It's possible. I certainly don't recall the exact timing of these. But yeah, I was like, those are of the similar vintage. And I feel that they kind of set up a lot of maybe later meme culture for just sort of like the, the, the nature of like someone has to put effort into this thing to basically just throw it out like it's garbage. Just to have people look at it for two seconds and go, that's stupid, and then laugh for a couple of minutes, and then move on to something else, and that's it. Yeah, I, you can see how it uh, led to the disposable nature of humor and comedy. Yeah. Yeah, certainly in, in mean form, yeah. most prevalently nowadays. Uh, but You're the Man Now, Dog, was, uh, for a lot of us, uh, our... Uh, introduction to Sean Connery, if you will, because he was old when we were young. Oh, yeah, I mean, like... He was like, he was 60 when we were young. Yeah, he was like, he he died at 90. Like, I think the earliest thing I would have maybe saw him in was either um, Indiana Jones, like the third one, mm-hmm. or maybe uh, one of the, was he in Highlander? The first Highlander. But even then, that was a little bit before my time. And what was that other one with the dragon? Uh, Dragonheart? It might have been Dragonheart. Where he does the voice of the dragon? Yeah, like, and even then, like, we probably wouldn't have even recognized him. No. <laughs> and then, like, combine you're the man now dog.com with the parody of him on Celebrity Jeopardy, and I think that is what, oh, what Sean Connery, that's, I mean, whether he likes it or not, or would have liked it or not, that's the legacy I think he leaves, but it's not a bad legacy. It's certainly not. I mean, to have made that much of an impact that you are worthy of being memed and turned into uh, a, a well-received recurring uh, Will Ferrell character on Saturday Night Live, one of the institutions of American television. Uh, uh, oh, not Will Ferrell. Daryl Hammond did yeah, it. Daryl Hammond. Will Fer- Sorry, Will Ferrell was... He was uh, Alex Trebek. Yes, he was. Yes, but... Um, and Norm Macdonald was a great Burt Reynolds. <laughs> yes, yes, he was. <laughs> Who's Keanu Reeves? Oh, I don't remember. Oh, was it Jimmy Fallon? May have been. In one of his, like, few okay instances on SNL? Anyways. Where he didn't crack up halfway through? Or he probably did, but I just don't remember because it's not top of mind. Like, it's not the best of the Celebrity Jeopardy, no. so it's not the one I went back to enough but uh yeah fun times absolutely and uh, a lot of uh, media articles or whatever you're seeing in the wake of sean connery's passing will i think probably first and foremost mention his time as the initial portrayal of james bond yeah uh, when those when that fra- movie franchise got started which is fantastic i dare say the one movie that deserves more mention in his filmography is zardoz <laughs> <laughs> a film that he, in multiple interviews, I think he spoke with pure disdain for that movie because I think in all the interviews I've read where people try to bring it up, he basically just says 
in no uncertain terms, that movie was a paycheck to me, nothing more. I had debts I had to pay off, and that looked like a quick, easy buck. And that's it. Nothing more. And it's just like any any lasting legacy the movie had, I think, was basically an affront to him. Which is like, oof. Okay. Yikes. Well, he uh, clearly never managed to make peace with uh, that film. <laughs> no. But that's uh, water under the bridge now because it still stands as a completely ridiculous movie. A ridiculous piece of 70s sci-fi. Well, I think that movie, like, is it's sort of like one of the examples I like to use of, like, if you're going to do a movie set in the future, set it so far in the future that it's ridiculous, and there's no possible way people can look at it and go, oh, look at those idiots back then. They had no idea. Because it's just like, no, like, of course they don't. It, because Zardoz is set in, what, 2,500, 2,700? No, it's set in, like, 10,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, I remember, like, they, there was some blurb at the start of the movie where it was, like, in the year 10,111 or something. It's like, what? What kind of year is that? But yeah, it's like obviously post-apocalyptic. Fine, like eight thousand years in the past, no one had any idea what was going to happen. If you're <laughs> like, if you're in the year ten thousand and you're somehow listening to this podcast and you're hearing our hot take on this, please be gentle because we had no idea. <laughs> like people eight thousand years ago had no idea where we'd be at now. No, like obviously. So yeah, it's a completely ridiculous movie. Uh, it's a cult movie. For how insane it is, yeah, uh, the insane vision of the future it presents, but and that what is it like a onesie leotard thing that Sean Connery's wearing? Yes, the costume <laughs> Sean Connery wears the whole time. It's bright red, um, just it's basically like it's a bathing suit. It's like leather straps. It's like leather suspenders crossed across his bare naked chest, and he's wearing a. They're holding up like a red speedo. And then he's got, like, knee-high boots on. And he's got a long, jet-black ponytail going on, yeah, too. and a mustache. Yeah, well, yes. But, I mean, yeah, that that's neither here nor there. The mustache, anyway. Mustache was always there. <laughs> yeah. But the, <laughs> the whole outfit is, like, you can, you can Google this. It'll be the first thing that comes up with him holding that weird ray gun thing. Yes. It's, like, <laughs> remember when I first saw it? I feel like that was a thing where... One of us found that picture, and we're just, what the hell movie is this? <laughs> and we looked it up, and was like, holy crap, I have to buy this movie. It was just like, we watched it, was like, this did not disappoint. This is exactly what I thought it would be. It's one of those rare instances where the movie lives up to the cover. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I have no idea what happened in the movie, but it was insane. I recall there, there's a giant floating stone statue head. Who was Zardoz? Who was Zardoz? Um, and there's something to do with like breeding and procreating, or at least uh, physical intercourse is outlawed. And um, and you need to breeding has to be approved by some elder council, and you can only breed with these like what are they like the savage men or something that Sean Connery was one of something like that. And you're in. Uh, the process is put inside inside some weird breeding chamber, but it's the 70s, so it's there's a lot of mirrors and colored lights going on. Yeah, very like Soylent Greenish. Yes, yeah. Where it's we're trying to look futuristic, but we're limited by what is around us at the time, and computer effects just don't <laughs> exist. No, they 
I mean, computer effects were literally just like overlays put on with like laser type effects. And that was it. Nothing else. No, you couldn't CG worlds like you can now. No, a lot of practical effects back then. And that's all they could do. So if you haven't seen Zardoz, I hope we built it up for you after all, all that so you can see uh, one of the Sterling movies in Sean Connery's filmography. I mean... I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's not a Sterling movie, it's but not, it's a ridiculous movie. It's worth watching as a curiosity in the same way that like maybe Barbarella might be worth watching as a curiosity or something like that. Because <laughs> I would say there may be not similarities, but like of the same kind of idea. That same era. Same era, same weirdly, like, vaguely sexualized, like, main character. In, like, a very specific way, though. Like, not, like, not broadly sexualized, but, like, maybe someone had some sort of, uh, fetish going into the costume design or something. There's some, uh, wish fulfillment going on. Yeah, but don't, don't let that part scare you away. Like, it's not really a sexual movie, I, from what I remember. I, I feel like they're, like all 70s movies, there are breasts and stuff in it. Cause that just, they were all about that in the 1970s. Especially in 70s British sci-fi. Yeah. Very much so. It's like, oh, it's sci-fi. Then we can show some knockers. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, but again, don't expect an Oscar worthy performance from anyone. <laughs> it's, it's not that type of movie. Just so you know what you're getting into ahead of time. Yeah. But shall we move on from a, a ridiculous movie? It can be considered ludicrous to perhaps our two actual ludicrous leadoffs this week that are actually somewhat, uh, well, one's game related. The other one's not. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, so we'll talk about the game related one off the top here. Our first ludicrous leadoff takes us to Japan where ludicrous things often happen and they just seem to have a different way about them in the culture that uh, allows for these very creative ideas and takes on things. And so this news, a little, it's a few weeks old, but uh, that's okay. We're just getting to it now. I mean, if last week wasn't Halloween, we would have discussed it then. But at this year's Toyama Gamers Day event in Japan, uh, the game that was being played uh, was called Fight Crab. And so there was a tournament for this game called Fight Crab, and it's as it sounds, you play as crabs, and it's a fighting game. And the tournament was called the King Crab Tournament. Yes, to crown the King Crab in this Fight Crab Tournament. So you would think if it's a gaming tournament, uh, the top winner at, at the end of the day is going to get some sort of prize, likely a cash prize, maybe some sort of trophy, themed or something in the shape of a crab or whatnot, because it's all kind of crab themes and whatnot. But it turns out the winner of this year's event actually walked away with crabs. Not not in their nether regions. Yes. Well, not deliberately in their (laughs) nether regions. I mean, um, what happens on the car ride home is neither, you know, not for us to know or report on in that type of way, but uh, we don't care. No, uh, but the crabs that they walked away with were, um, like, red snow crabs. Actual crabs. Actual crabs you could eat, which are from, you know, uh, what we understand from Brian Ashcraft of Kotaku.com, uh, tells us they are a local delicacy to the, uh, Toyama area. So, 
legitimate snow crabs. Snow crab is expensive if you ever go to buy it here. It can be. Uh, apparently, a single snow crab uh, in Japan is priced around 3,000 yen, which uh, translates approximately to $28.60 American. So that's about in line with the prices I've seen for snow crab at various higher-end seafood restaurants I've been to. And that's for one snow crab? Yeah. Huh. That seems like a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's a. I think they're a little bit of a bigger crab, but it's like a high-quality crab if you're into... Crab. I like crab. Crab is delicious, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a weird thing to give away as a prize for a video game tournament. I wonder if the person kept it as a, as a pet. <laughs> <laughs> like Homer with Pinchy? Exactly. Yes. I'll take a, I'll take a 3,000 yen lobster and fatten them up to a 30,000 yen lobster <laughs> and eat the profits. <laughs> now you're thinking, uh, so you know, apparently snow crab is actually, uh, very prevalent and actually a famous export of the Toyama region in Japan. So they are known apparently for their seafood. I did not know this information prior to coming across this article. Yeah, I wasn't aware of anything about Toyama, but I guess you'll learn something new every day. Also, there's a game called Fight Crab where you fight as crabs. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh, apparently though, this... This isn't the only tournament that they've given crabs away, like this type of crab away. Some, seems so weird to say that out loud, but mm-hmm. uh, it's the only, this is not the only tournament where they've given crab away as a uh, prize, because apparently there's some weird, messy regulations for esports winnings in Japan. Uh, apparently this has been a thing for a Fortnite tournament before, but what kind of a headline is that? Snow crab given away as prize for winning at Fortnite tournament doesn't have the same funny appeal as winning at a crab based fighting game tournament. Like that's funny. That's comedy that writes itself. Sure is. And they mean it seriously. I think this is funny. And now, you know, crabs given away in Japan, 2020, can it get any weirder? What Um, else does 2020 have in store for us? Well, there's one other ludicrous lead off that kind of uh, sets us up for that. Remember when we did, we talk about this on this Program, we did talk about this on the program, right? Of the other show? Yes, we have spoken about the fact the other show is coming back, and uh, I think we... Well, I said other show. I should have just said one show is coming back. The one show that you... This is not the ludicrous lead-off, but as you know, Animaniacs is coming back in the year 2021. No, year 2020. Oh, is it? It's three weeks away. Oh, three weeks away. Okay, good. Yes. For some reason, I thought it was like, March or something of next year. No, well, yeah, so yes. Animaniacs is coming back this year. And when you think of Animaniacs, you probably think it's one of two shows that came out about the same time by Warner Brothers that, you know, were kind of wacky 90s comedy versions of, like, you know, the Warner Brothers classic sensibilities from the 50s and 60s. Animaniacs was 1B, but 1A was Tiny Toon Adventures. Well, it's coming back, too. Thanks, 2020. You're the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you have murder hornets, COVID-19. Natural disasters, wildfires. Wildfires, that whole messy American election situation, which, I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's a thing. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Well, we're, we're recording this early. I'm sure the results by the time that this is released will be out. One way or the other, so... 
I trust the entire country has not descended into abject chaos. Yes, well, we'll, we'll see. We are recording Monday night this week, which um, by Friday, that'll be a very interesting uh, situation. Who knows? Yeah. But, um, yeah, with, with all these bad things that have happened, you know, there are little pockets of fun and light. I mean, despite what some people on the Internet might say of, like, why do we have to endlessly reboot everything? If it looks, if it's done right, it could be good. And also, in the case of the Animaniacs, it doesn't feel like a reboot to me because it's all the original people are all there. And it's the same style. They didn't change the style. So it just feels like new episodes of an old show. That's not a reboot. No, it's a continuation. Yeah. There was just a 20, 25 year gap in between and all of a sudden there's new episodes. Yeah. And hopefully that's the same case that uh, will happen with the new Tiny Toons cartoon that according to a press release that was put out last week, it's going to be called Tiny, Tiny Toons Lunaversity and it has been given a straight to series two season order and will be airing on HBO Max and Cartoon Network in the United States. Uh, regional broadcast deals have yet to be further announced. Literally, this was just an initial announcement of like, holy crap, this is the thing that's happening. Uh, so the series is being revived and Steven Spielberg is coming back on board as he was with the Animaniacs reboot. Yeah. Or continuation. And if he's on board, that means that he has some very, well, if it's, if his Animaniacs involvement is any indication, that means he has very exacting requirements, meaning keep the character designs the same, get as many original voice actors on board as you can, keep the humor style the same, has to be consistent, make it feel more like a continuation, make it feel less like a reboot, there's your orders, do it or I'm out, and you're not doing this either because I own the rights because I'm Steven goddamn Spielberg. Amblin Television is actually doing something again. Yeah. So, I have high hopes for this, just like I have high hopes for Animaniacs. The trailer for Animaniacs did not disappoint. Oh, no. If, if you have not seen it, uh, do a search on YouTube for the new Animaniacs trailer. It's about two, two and a half minutes long, and it's very much channeling the spirit and energy and humor of the original Animaniacs series. It is worth it. Yeah. But with more modern references. I'm thinking of the uh, one snippet of uh, Pinky being catfished on a dating site. <laughs> I laughed for like... I had to pause it because I was laughing so hard at how stupid that visual joke was. I was like, oh my god, it's back. Animaniacs is back. And it's going to be good. <laughs> uh, according to the press release as well, uh, heralding this announcement, uh, it, Tiny Toons University will be based on the characters from Tiny Toon Adventures, uh, but this new one will center around the antics of some of the uh, some of those characters, such as Babs and Buster, Elmire, well, Elmira and Montana Max as they study to become the next generation of professional tunes. However, Cree Summer, the original voice actress of Elmira from Tiny Toon Adventures and also one season of Elmira and Pinky and the Brain, or Pinky and the Brain and Elmira, which killed the series. Yep. She has posted on Twitter saying that Elmira will not be a part of uh, Tiny Toon Luniversity uh, initially, or Tiny Toons Luniversity initially. So, uh, so we know Babs and Buster Bunny will be in there based on the artwork that was released to Twitter on both uh, the Cartoon Network accounts and HBO Max accounts, which shows Babs and Buster Bunny kind of looking a bit older. Babs or Buster is wearing a 
looks like a, a university, um, I guess, letterman's jacket, just minus the letters on the jacket, because he's maybe not on the football team, and Babs looks to be wearing a purple jacket. Yeah. And she, in the original series, had a purple skirt. But, like, weren't they already going to a university back then? They were going to Acme University. university to earn their tuned degree. Yes. So maybe this is more focused on them and their academic adventures? I, unless they're like professors there now? Cause that was 25 years ago. Don't know. I don't care. It's gonna be new Tiny Tunes. Yeah. And you know what? I'm glad that I mean, in all, res- like with all due respect to Chris Summers, she's done a lot of great voice work over the years. Fantastic voice actress. I mean, amazing voice actress, tons of great memorable characters. Elmira was hella annoying? Super annoying. Definitely my least favorite part of that show. Uh, I can, I can agree with that. Uh, it's on the super annoying part. A one note character, she felt like. Yeah. I mean, she was funny every now and then when used almost like seasoning. Mm-hmm. You know, like you just put a little bit of whatever on top of the, you know, like you're, you're not gonna like eat a whole bowl of salt, but if you put a little bit on something, it makes, it's a, it adds a nice little thing to cooking. Like, like you're not gonna like, yeah, like, you know, like it, no one really wants to drink a whole bottle of hot sauce, but if you put it on wings here and there, it's like, okay, add some cake to the wings. Like, you, like, it got to a point when they were trying to like, do too much with the one note characters, because I think that's what they thought people wanted. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how like all shows end up, like all shows that are of this nature where they're episodic, not like, there's no story arcs between shows. Like they're just kind of one shot episodes. They always like when ratings start to kind of wane, they try to do things to inject life into the shows to try to bring ratings back. Even though the fact that like shows just kind of have a natural arc and Elmira kind of becoming more of a focus for this show. And then also later with pinky in the brain kind of is like what ended up kind of killing both shows. Anyways, I'm okay if they kind of leave Elmira kind of in the back of the cupboard for a while. That's that's okay. I mean, if she comes back in season three or four, cool. The initial two seasons, uh, a relaunch of this, and relaunch of the characters, too. They've been on the shelf for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, stick with the core. Babs Buster, uh, Plucky Duck. And Hampton Pig. Hampton Pig. I'd also throw Montana Max in there. Yeah, I'd throw Montana Max in there, too, because he was basically... He was like the our generation's Yosemite Sam. Yes. And Yosemite Sam was always a ridiculous character. Like I always like Yosemite Sam. Just this always kind of angry, cranky character. Basically like a tiny gun toting Wild West guy with a Napoleon complex, basically. He was, yes. Except and Montana Max was just a spoiled rich kid with uh, way too much money and way too much of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Although I did have the thought that if they were to really make this modern for current times, would Montana Max be given a stupid haircut and a white collar golf shirt and be like a proud boy or something? I could see it. I mean, if it is going to be on HBO Max, that's not intended for children, is it? Well, HBO Max also has the rights to Sesame Street as well. I guess that's true. So they want, they want a broad, uh, 
cross demographic appeal. So they're not gonna they're not gonna make a gritty tiny tunes. Not that's fair, but I mean like the jokes might be more adult and orient adult oriented. I mean, Animaniacs looks like it's going to be more for adults this time around. Mm-hmm. If I'm, if I was reading the uh, new trailer right, it didn't really feel like a kids show when I was watching the new trailer. It didn't, though. I wonder if that's just because we're watching it as you know, thirty-five year old adults. You know, would the appeal also be the same if we were seven to ten years old back then too? Because it's a silly, funny show. We're cluing in and uh, having, you know, different fa- uh, facets of that trailer appeal to us because we have built-in nostalgia, too. Yeah. Also, thank you for aging me down to 35. You're welcome. <laughs> yes. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, so, Tiny Toons coming back to HBO Max. No timeline uh, for when it's going to air. No timeline for production even starting. I'm sure the uh, production is going to be a little bit slowed down by the fact that... Uh, no, I mean, well, every, COVID. COVID, everyone's working remotely, so it's harder to do a, a writer's room and just brainstorm simultaneously right there. Yeah, I mean, like, Zoom calls don't have the same rhythm at all. No, you can't feel the vibe of room and just, like, groove on a, as you write in comedy, on a Zoom chat. No. You, you can't. It's not conducive to it. No, especially if someone has lag, then it just kind of, it becomes chaos. And it's just, like, people talking over each other, jokes getting lost in, like, the lag and... Yeah, it's not great. Someone asking for uh, what was just said to be repeated because they missed it. And it's no longer in the moment. It's not as funny now because it's like, well, uh, never mind. Exactly. So uh, we shall see. But if you need a new uh, animation, Warner Brothers animation fix, uh, the new Animaniac series is starting on November 20th on Hulu. Uh, for that series, international rights agreements and broadcast agreements I don't think they've been announced yet, or if they have, I've totally missed them. Uh, check your local service providers, your local streaming service providers and whatnot. And if uh, that doesn't work, then I'm sure you, as a wise person here in this the year 2020, can figure out how to watch it where you live. Yes. I'm sure we might have to resort to that last version here. But uh, where there's a will, there's a way, and yeah. we are creative people, and I'm sure we can figure something yeah. out. There's definitely a will, and yeah. Anyways, so uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll figure out the way, as should all of you, if you are interested in watching Animaniacs, which you should be. If you're listening to this program, there's probably some crossover here. Absolutely. So Animaniacs coming back, Tiny Toons coming back. I'm hoping this means Freakazoid comes back. I mean, Clone High is coming back. Clone High is coming back. These two shows are coming back. Hopefully, Freakazoid's coming back. A lot of people are hoping Gargoyles comes back as well. Ooh. I mean, as long as they get, you know... I mean, most of the cast of The Next Generation is still alive. It's true. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they still could be doing with, you know, Jonathan Frakes, Michael Doran, Marina Sirtis, like all them. Keith David is still alive. Yes, he is. Uh, It's important to get him as the voice of Goliath. Yes, it is. So... If it maintains that uh, dark moodiness, you can still write some good series. Yeah. All right. Fingers crossed. We'll see. Fingers crossed. But uh, with Tiny Toons, not Tiny Toons, with Animaniacs coming out in three weeks, that should actually... um, Fill a void, give you something to do? Fill a little bit of a void that, you know, we were expecting to be filled, uh, well, really, in a couple of weeks from now, but... uh, well, remember when Cyberpunk 2077 went gold? 
Remember when that used to mean something? Yeah, it meant that uh, a game is locked in and is basically, or quite literally, being sent off to the presses. Yeah. Uh, I guess Cyberpunk 2077 is allowed to get around that that distinction? <laughs> it's gone gold with an asterisk? Yeah, it went gold, then it stopped being gold, and now it's... Gold gets pushed back. Whatever that actually means now. It got bumped down to silver? Yeah, I guess. Um, because remember when, you know, it was first... It was first supposed to be released this past April, then it got delayed until September 17th, and then when it was looking like... Well, I don't know, whatever the case. They then, you know, got a little bit, you know, gun-shy and then delayed it till November 19th. And then we were all like, okay. And then we heard it went gold, so that means, okay, cool. It's it's for sure a go on September 19th, or November 19th. Cool. So by November 19th, we'll be playing Cyberpunk 2077. Well, one of, one of if not the most anticipated titles of this year. Yeah. If not the last two or three years. Yes. So, I know that's a lot of pressure. Obviously, like, The Witcher 3 kind of blew everyone's minds, is maybe one of the best games of all time to a lot of people, myself included. I will definitely be one of the first to say, I'm super excited for this. But, you know, despite weird problems had on the social media front with CD Projekt Red and stuff, anyways... Whatever the case, all that stuff aside, uh, this game was supposed to be going live or to be available for sale on November 19th uh, as of, well, the end of October, you know, during the week where we were giving you our, our uh, Halloween show, mm-hmm. our Halloween music show. Uh, they snuck this sneaky news in to say, actually, we're delaying it until uh, uh, December 10th. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Enjoy your Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> well, I'm out of here. <laughs> they just decided to just kind of ride away on their Vespa, Vespa, or whatever they want to do over there. <laughs> Poland, I guess. I don't know. Polish Vespa. Polish Vespa. Yes. The v- <laughs> I don't know what that would be. Even no to, um, to even make a terrible joke. So, uh, but CD Projekt Red. Yes, the, this game is delayed yet again. Now the question is becoming, in my mind, will it even come out on December 10th? Like, what percentage would you put at your confidence level that this game comes out December 10th? I have no idea, but here's the messed up thing now. Going gold means discs for the game have been printed, but they delayed it because apparently they need to improve on the game's day zero patch. So that now means that 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 whole game that you're going to have to wait like for it to install for like an hour on your system you're also going to have to wait for like a huge update and then you have to wait for that huge update to install before you can play it so mm-hmm. maybe just download it i i don't know like this is this is one of those things where i'm like the physical medium thing is like wow <laughs> There's no getting around the fact that uh, you're going to have to wait to yeah. play this game. A, this initial three-week period, and that assumes a December 10th release date, actually happens. Yeah. I'm not there in believing that. No, I mean, they delayed it, what, four times now? I believe this is the fourth. 
And it's been in development for, I believe, five years already, if not longer. Yeah. So there's that. So assuming it comes out December 10th, you get it. Whatever means, you know, physical media, digital download, choice is yours. Those are the only two at this point. Yep. You have to, A, load the game from physical media, as you pointed out, onto your console, whichever one you are choosing, then download the Day Zero patch. Now, if you go digital download, there's the initial game download size, the essentially the same game that would be on the physical media, plus the addition of the Day Zero patch, all in the same I think package. I think they're all rolled together, so it's smaller download that way, I think. Okay, but still, it's a... It's a larger file size than what this would have been a couple of weeks ago. Maybe not. It might not be. It might not be a smaller download. It might be the same download size. But either way, it's like... And that's that process is going to take time. Yeah, but regardless, it's funny that there's... It's just funny to me that there's physical games printed, but then they're delaying it so that they can put out a better Day Zero patch... What does going gold even mean, is what I'm trying to say. Like, why why even bother with the facade of this physical medium? Like, I know this is making me sound like an old person, but, like, remember when a game got released onto a cartridge and that was it? The game, you lived with that game, bugs and all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the bugs just added to the quirks of the game. Now, I know those games were simpler. There was nowhere near the amount of crazy variables at stake, but, like... You know, you'd look at, like, a game like one of the more impressive Super Nintendo-type titles, like a Chrono Trigger or something like that. Yeah, of course there's bugs in Chrono Trigger. People have been playing that game for 20 years now and can find whatever. But, you know, like, you you're, you still just kind of live with it. Like, I don't consider Chrono Trigger a bad game because there's bugs found in it from, you know, a 25-year-old game. No, it's still a great game, one of the best games of all time. But, like, the game is what it is. Like, there's no Day Zero patches. Like, I'm sure I'm sure Squaresoft, now Square Enix, you know, could look at Chrono Trigger and go, ah, oh, we should fix this, we could fix this. Oh, there's all these different things we could fix in that game. It's like, yeah, you, you could. Or you just release the game as it is and, like, then move on to something else. But I guess, like, games also didn't have the crazy budgets that they have now, and they also didn't have the crazy release cycle and, like, all the high expectations of, like, bugs to be fixed and, like, the the crazy variability of 3D engines and stuff and, like, logic engines and artificial intelligence pathing and stuff you have to fix and locations of literally millions of things in a massive 3D world. Like, it's, I get it, but it just sucks. It's like, man, come on. It's like, you release a game and now you have to, like, you're putting it off because you want to release it something else that'll make the game less, but like it, I wonder uh, if you're a developer out there who has experience working specifically in game development, uh, I should clarify because I know you're a developer, but you you don't ever touch this world. That's a world I'm not aware of. Like there's, if you're a web developer, I, I work in the world of the web and in, you know, sometimes in mobile apps, but like mobile apps, like, I don't deal with physics engines. I don't deal with 3D engines. Like, I don't know. So I would be interested to hear from a uh, game developer, perhaps uh, someone who's got some some years under their belt, if the pr- uh, the challenges and perhaps bugs you encounter in game development have scaled proportionally over time. 
you know, are you encountering the same uh, equivalent bugs now as you did back in developing, you know, Chrono Trigger for the Super Nintendo or things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I feel the answer is no or yes. No, <laughs> sorry. Here's what I'm going to try to say. I feel that there were way less bugs back then because there was just less of stuff in general and less expectation in general of a game. Like, the cutscenes in a game like that weren't, like... Like, for a while, they were pre-rendered, like, videos that you would play, like, in the PlayStation era. So you could get away with whatever stuff like that. But a cutscene now is kind of similar to a cutscene back then, except you're reliant on, like, an entire different game engine. The Chrono Trigger game engine was literally, like, maybe five layers of stuff stacked on top of each other with instructions on what to animate when based on inputs, Mm -hmm. and that's it. Like, that's, like, literally, like, okay, you're walking, so you have the background layer, your, then your foreground layer has, like, your first foreground layer is, like, enemies, then your second foreground layer is, you know, you. So, you walk around when that, when you, when you walk around, like, a collision point where an enemy is, battle starts. Simple. Now the battle has a whole bunch of other, has like another couple of layers added on. Your menus are another layer. And then like your cursors and stuff is another layer. That's it. 3D though, you're getting into like, like 3D physics and lighting and audio cues, like all around like 3D audio cues Mm -hmm. and like triggering voice actors to say things and like branching like logic you have to keep track of and the lo- literal X, Y, Z locations of individual objects like coffee cups and stuff in the whole world. Where all of those things are in this massive world. Steam coming off the coffee cups. Yeah. But I, I mean, that's, that's more like just internal to the coffee cup itself. So like how the coffee cup itself works, but like where the coffee cup is even just mm-hmm. all these locations of things. Like if you think about how big a world like the Witcher is, and then you think of all of the different things, like, that you can move as Geralt when you're moving around. Like, you can kill an enemy over here and leave his stash, and it'll still be there. You walk into a place, and you know, you, you take a book off a shelf and put it somewhere else. Like, these are crazy variables of, like, so many things. So it's just like, I would say it's scaled, like, logarithmically, if anything. Like, there's way more potential for bugs now than there would be back then. And yeah, like, but again, I'm not a game developer. <laughs> I, I'm just, I think you pick up some stuff as a developer in general when you think about things like this, but if you are a game developer, I'd like to pick your brain sometime about this sort of thing. Like trade war stories, perhaps. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, and if you're someone who's working at CD Projekt Red and can steal just five minutes out of your day because you're under dev crunch now, yes, have been, are. I'm sure, for months. For five years, probably. To bang this out because of the investment that CD Projekt Red has made, uh, let us know your thoughts. You can email us, info at thearcadeshow.com, or hit us up through social media. We are on Twitter, at The Arcade Show, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash show. If you have words and uh, stories from the inside of game development that you want to get out and share with the world, but perhaps 
um, do not feel safe to uh, say them aloud yourself or whatnot, we will simply share your words anonymously and go from there. But uh, it's an intriguing, intriguing uh, thought to me. Just the scale of, of bugs and problems with game development. Are they, you know, how do they compare to yield and times? Yeah. Of a game on a cartridge. I mean, having said that too, though, maybe there are less bugs that you see because you are working with pre-built components a lot of times too. Like, if I'm a developer now, I'm not building an engine from scratch. No. I'm going to be using Unreal Engine. And if there's a bug happening with Unreal Engine, I'll just look up how to fix it. Oh yeah. And, there's a lot more resources and help now for developers. Yeah. Because, Back in the the day of, like, the Super Nintendo and before and whatnot, you'd be building your own engine. You'd be coding everything from scratch in, like, low-level assembly or something that, you know, you're interacting with hardware and, like, memory yourself. You're not dealing with, like, the abstraction layer that are these libraries that are pre-built for you. Like, when you open up any game now, like, you see, you'll see logos like Unreal and PhysX and, like you know, Gamebryo and things like that. Like, these are all parts of engines that you... Uh, those are, like, the ones that pop into my head because I've been playing a lot of the you know, Fallout New Vegas these mm-hmm. days. Getting well, ready for uh, after the American election. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Getting a glimpse of what the world will look like. Yeah, just, you know, um, uh, just getting a taste of the wasteland right now, so I'm used to it. Exactly. So you're not horrified and shocked. You have an edge on everyone who will be uh, just reeling in the initial aftermath, but no, you're there. You're ready. Yeah. For those of you that haven't played, you know, Fallout game, I'm ready to be a ghoul. <laughs> That's me. I'm going to live for 300 years. I can't wait to call people smooth skin. <laughs> hey there, smooth skin. I got the voice ready and everything. Anyways, uh, it's yeah. the role you were born to play. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, speaking of, uh, no, I, I can't say roles. I'm, I'm, I was born to play because I don't know how you'd pull a role out of this. Lawyer in a class action lawsuit? Is that really a role that anyone was built to play? What you could have said is, how you could have made the connection is, uh, the, you know, to say that, it, you know, it's a role you were born to play. That's a line made famous by, uh, on The Simpsons, uh, by Troy McClure. Thank you. My, my mind was blanking. <laughs> Bill Hartman did too many voices on the show. He did. Uh, but uh, Troy McClure, um, who also did the voice of uh, the lawyer as well on uh, The Simpsons. Lionel Hutz. Thank you. He was also the, uh, oh, what was his character on SNL? Something caveman lawyer? Caveman. He was caveman lawyer. Yes. Yes. So Phil Hartman had a lot of roles, so it's kind of hard to keep them all clear uh, in your head distinctly. Yes. Uh, they kind of get mashed up uh, sometimes, but yes. So Lionel Hutz, he was the lawyer, and perhaps then you become the lawyer involved in this case. Yeah. As uh, we were talking about a legal filing that has been sent the way of electronic arts in Canada over loot boxes. Absolutely. So in our home and native land, Canada where we are broadcasting out of, not broadcasting, whatever you want to call this, podcasting, podcasting, yes, recording out of, recording out of, we live in, we are citizens of the country. It's where our stuff is. It's where our stuff is, yes. Um, So a class action lawsuit's been filed against EA here, which accuses the publisher of breaching our country's criminal code by including loot boxes in the games. 
uh, as spotted by the Patch Notes, which is a gaming and esports law blog, uh, this lawsuit was filed on September 30th, 2020, by Mark Sutherland and Sean Moore, residents based in Ontario and British Columbia, respectively, who claim that EA has been operating an illegal gambling system by selling loot boxes in various franchises that we've talked about over the last couple of years, Madden, FIFA, NHL, NBA Live, Mass Effect, Battlefield, etc., etc. Every EA franchise has had some aspect of this in the last, that have been released in the last two or three years. Um, The fact that the lawsuit, well, you know, it's, it's notable that this is a class action lawsuit, uh, as it means that the plaintiffs aren't just suing on their own behalf, but behalf of everybody in Canada who had previously purchased a loot box in an EA title going all the way back to 2008. So, you know, if you grew up watching as much TV as Mike the Legend and myself did, you probably saw those various class action lawsuit responding commercials and you know usually on american television Mm -hmm. where it was like if you took this drug between this day and this date you could be entitled to money it's like really huh it's like of course when you look into the class action lawsuit a little bit more you're like ooh, that money would not even scratch the surface of uh the damages that this drug could potentially do considering one of the side effects is usually death yeah there's that uh (laughs) So, you know, you may be entitled to a, a financial sum, but usually that fina- financial sum, too, is... It's a joke? Small? It's a pittance? Yeah. Like, I remember there was one in Canada. I don't think it ever actually got paid out. I think against Westfair Foods when they were doing something with... Oh, bread pricing. And the bread pricing. And I think it was like everyone who had who's able to provide receipts of buying bread between some period was entitled to something, what, like $10 or something? It, it was a silly, silly low amount. Yeah. Uh, but it's rare in Canada to see these class action lawsuits actually come up. Uh, as you pointed out, this is a largely American legal system construct. Yeah. Because, like, normally us living in a, you know, the socialist, well, whatever you want to call it, like, whatever your opinion on socialism is, I'm not totally against it in most cases. You know, it kind of keeps crazy unbridled capitalism in check. Um, not to get too much on a soapbox, but hey, it's my podcast. I'll say whatever the hell I want. <laughs> True. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, being in a socialist country, largely we're kind of like, the government does step in to kind of prevent too much craziness, thankfully. So, like, it kind of removes the need for crazy class action lawsuits, generally mm-hmm. speaking. I also believe uh, we have a different standard for something to reach a class action lawsuit than in the United States. It seems, at least my impression is, things can become class action lawsuits pretty quickly and sometimes at the works of predatory law firms. Oh, absolutely. In the United States. Ambulance chasers, as I believe they would be called derogatorily. Yes. Uh, Yeah, like just scumbag lawyers who just want to get rich off of people's misery. Precisely. Yeah. We don't have those hawkish law firms here. Yeah. We like, because there are, <laughs> there's laws built into the legal system to prevent people from those predatory type practices. Usually. Yeah. So, yeah. which is why this is very, very unusual for this to kind of come across the radar. It's true. The, uh, the blog post uh, written by, at the patch note says that, uh, quote, by offering loot boxes through its games, the plaintiffs 
are essentially claiming that EA is operating an unlicensed gambling business in breach of the aforementioned criminal code and other statutes. They are also claiming EA, EA is liable to them at common law, including in unjust enrichment. So that is written on the patch notes by uh, Marius Adominica and goes on to write that, quote, the plaintiffs are also alleging the way in which EA has implemented loot boxes, including not publishing the odds of winning prizes and making using them semi-necessary for progression, breached various consumer protection statutes, including the BC Consumer Protection Act, end quote. And this is something we saw really come to a head in uh, that first big EA Star Wars game where loot boxes were semi-necessary for the progression through the game in order to get the characters you needed as they were locked away in loot boxes. Yeah. So an, an interesting thing noted by Abdominica in their in their blog on uh, the patch notes, they do claim this lawsuit's legit and it's being handled by a well-respected law firm in British Columbia. And I quote, uh, they say... It's not just some self-represented litigant filing a nuisance lawsuit, but a well-pled claim brought by an experienced legal team who specializes in going after large corporations for stuff like this. So, you could have a chance in doing something here in Canada. They could. Now, we should also say, this is going to take years to work its way through the legal system. Oh, yeah. I mean, EA is a huge corporation, at best, like, you know, what what would be the thing that, you know, what ends up happening is I could see, at best, EA decides not to pay anything and then basically just, like, turns off the potential for loot boxes in Canada entirely. It just adds us to their blacklist of countries for loot boxes, mm-hmm. which is fine. Yeah. Fine. We're not, wouldn't be the first jurisdiction to have that. So no. It's happening across Europe. Yeah, over in Belgium, I believe. Uh, Belgium, I believe Netherlands in places too. Yeah. You, uh, I believe the UK is starting to look at them more closely. Yeah. So the, the tide and public sentiment has clearly turned against loot boxes, the idea and practice of loot boxes. So uh, now it's just going to uh, be cemented through the legal systems of various jurisdictions around the world. Yep. So just weird it's happening in Canada. Kind of wild that it's happening in our own backyard, quote unquote, in that it's happening several thousand kilometers away. Yeah, which is which is funny to say about a country like Canada. I mean, people think Canada is a small country, but that's in like population only. We're a huge country, like gigantic country, like bigger than the United States land wise. Geographically, Most, we we got some space. Yeah, like I mean, generally, like. Most of it is too cold to live in, I would say. So it, it might be a kind of empty, you know, comparison. But, like, yeah, like, spread east to west. Like, we got a lot of ground to cover in our country. Yeah, you can drive three hours in any direction and still need to drive three hours. Yeah. Like, 25 more times, basically. Exactly. Like, Like, I've driven for 20 hours straight from Winnipeg, and I've gotten to, like, Calgary. Which is not the coast. No, it's definitely not the coast. And, like, we're in the middle of the country. <laughs> so it's like, you want to drive from one end of Canada all the way to the, like, you want to drive from, like, like, Victoria? Well, first you're going to have to get on a ferry to, like, go to Vancouver yeah. and then back to the mainland. But then if you want to drive from there all the way to, like, Newfoundland, Labrador, 
Like, you're in for, like, three days of driving. Solid. Like, without even counting stops. Like, good luck. Anyways. So, yeah. just so you know. So, just, just so you know. So, like, when, when, when you're thinking about, like, oh, like, Canada, like, oh, oh, do you know that law firm over in BC? It's like, no, no, I don't. We're in, we're in Winnipeg. Look at a map. <laughs> now look at the scale on the map. It's like, you see how, like, we're right above, like, North Dakota? Mm-hmm. And how, like, BC's all the way north, like, above, like, Washington State? Yeah, that's how far apart we are. Like, no, do you know people in Washington State? Like, no, of course you don't, North Dakota. Good God. Exactly. So, but it is a class action lawsuit, so it uh, will be open to all residents of Canada who purchased or have purchased a loot box in an EA game since the year 2008. Uh, more details on this as they come out. The initial filings have been made. The ball on the legal process for this has just started to roll. It will be rolling for several more years. This is not ending anytime soon. Any sort of victories that the plaintiffs have who brought this case, uh, the two individuals and anyone who su- joins in subsequently, uh, EA is, I'm sure, going to challenge all of that through the, uh, through the court system. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, EA is going to uh, fight uh, against this and have it uh, thrown out at every step of the way. And EA may eventually just come to a point where they say it's easier just to pay out rather than be forced to pay out, but admit no wrongdoing or something to that effect. Yeah. Depending on how many people actually join up and what the price point uh, per person, per plaintiff can be negotiated to. So, you know, they may settle for $10 million. That seems like a lot, but the people are not getting a million dollars each or anything like that. No. They'll get like two fifty. Yeah, probably. And that's assuming they still have a receipt to prove that they purchased a game with a loot box in it or purchased a, a loot box through a game in whatever game at whatever time. So, yeah, which, you know, there, there are usually like ways to track this thing in, you know, under various platforms, PlayStation network, Microsoft live mm-hmm. network, your email inbox, which would have these receipts. Yeah. I think so. Like they're, your credit card statement. Yeah. Like, so they're not, not all hope is going to be lost for you in like finding things like, I'm sure if you talk to a lawyer, they'll basically help you acquire these items if you've lost them or whatever. So, yeah. It's but you just, will need some kind of proof. Yeah. It won't just be enough to just show a copy of, like, I bought Battlefront, I bought Battlefront, see? It's like, no, because, like, for me personally, like, I have some of these games. Like, I have Mass Effect and stuff, but I've never bought any of the loot boxes. I always thought, that's garbage. I'm not spending money on that trash. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. So I wouldn't be eligible, period. Yep. So keep that in mind if you think this is going to be an easy payday based on what you've seen for class action lawsuits coming out of the United States. Uh, that's that's not how it's going to work here. It's not going to be a, a nine-figure settlement to blow you away. It's Yeah. No. Gear down. But uh, we will keep you apprised of this as it uh, rolls through the court system in the years ahead. But uh, one last quick news item to get to here. Speaking of very large sums, uh, Sony is doling out a whole lot of money to buy, of all things, Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll, the anime anime streaming service that uh, is, I guess, in competition, uh, in parallel competition with uh, with Funimation. Yeah, though Funimation is typically more for like Funimation Studios things. Crunchyroll is a lot more general. 
Like, I think before Funimation broke off on their own, it was one of those things where Funimation stuff would have been on Crunchyroll before. Mm-hmm. Like, Crunchyroll's been around a lot longer, to my understanding. Um, but yeah, so I guess as a result of that, they also have like a user base and Sony is all about maybe getting large user bases, dot, 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 to mismanage their accounts. Maybe, <laughs> okay, one time. time. Just one time, 79 million passwords got leaked out in plain text. Great. Okay, no one really understood web security back then anyway, so I mean, how can you hold it against them? Sony okay. Sony didn't understand web security back then. I was a junior developer and understood that you don't store plain text passwords in a database. That's insane. It's like, what are you talking about? I've learned about hashing. Come on. Good God. So Sony, who clearly have learned from their mistakes, even though Dennis will not let them live it down. No, I won't, uh, yeah. because they're a massive company, and that's they true. should have had the resources to fix it. But, well, yeah, and they're still a massive company, and they've got a billion dollars to spend on buying Crunchyroll, uh, which is, again, the anime streaming service that's available on basically everything, also including your console, your game console, yep, such as your PlayStation console. So the deal's not done, but apparently it's in late stages. Uh, this news being reported by the business service Nikkei Asia, and the price point currently pegged at 957 million US dollars for Sony to buy Crunchyroll. So getting close to that billion dollar valuation for Crunchyroll, which is crazy. Now, apparently this would be just a full takeover and Sony would own them outright. This wouldn't be a percentage deal. It would just be the full thing, which is still a, almost a billion dollars for Crunchyroll. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. So even crazier, Sony, as we mentioned, uh, or as we mentioned Funimation, Sony already owns Funimation. And they own the, the service, the Funimation, Funimation service, which has apparently a million subscribers. Though Crunchyroll has 3 million subscribers, uh, paid subscribers and 70 million free users on their platform. Yeah, because that's the interesting thing about Crunchyroll. There's a free tier. Unlike Funimation, like Crunchyroll gets you a free tier, which, you know, it's, it's very limited. Like Mm -hmm. it's only like the latest episode of like a few series, but still there's a free tier and it gets you new content that you can watch. I mean, for free. For free, like it's ad supported and stuff as well, but it's still free. So there's a thing and there's 70 million people who at least sometimes log in and check out some of that free content. So that's huge. Also, now if they have both of these big anime streaming services now, are they going to kill one and just kind of migrate people over to the other? Combine them into some new third thing? Or just you- just leave it at Crunchyroll and just put all the Funimation stuff on there? Maybe. Maybe this will finally bring some uh, harmony to the anime streaming verse. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I don't know, but uh, if you, you know, had been, if you told me, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, hell, twenty years ago, that Sony would spend a billion dollars to buy in uh, an anime streaming business... Well, first, if it was 20 <laughs> years ago, you'd be like, what the hell's a streaming business? Yes. I mean, you'd be like, what's streaming? 20 years ago, videos yeah. on the computer was literally, like, literally, like, real movies or real media that, like, you know, were, like, bundled in with, like, audio CDs where you'd get one music video. 
that would play as part of some interactive CD thing. Oh, I remember those. Yeah, like, you know, I, I had an Ozzy album that had, I think it was the Osmosis album had like the video for Perry Mason on it. And like I had a corn album that I still have these albums. The, the corn album, uh, follow the leader when you put it in your windows 95 CD or your windows 95 computer or windows 98 computer, the thing would come up and play the freak on a leash video, <laughs> things like that. So like, that's what videos on the computer were back then. A novelty. They were like, if you were going to download something, like literally video is unthinkable because like it would take too goddamn long. Yeah, like like MP3s would take hours to download for God's sake. So you have to let them run overnight. Yeah. And like the concept of streaming was like maybe like a shoutcast server or something. And like those were like few and far between that had anything good on them. And it was basically just effectively like a radio station at like kind of a crappy quality. That was it. You had to have a good enough internet connection to listen to it anyway. So 20 years ago, like, I don't think any of us would have been able to tell, like, first of all, where the internet would be now, 20 years ago. Like, it's like, you mean, like, everyone has an account on one website where, like, everyone can talk to everyone if they want to? That's insane. That would be chaos. And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. It is. (laughs) Welcome to social media. It's going to wreck the world. Hey. Remember that wacko who thinks the earth is flat? Well, him and all the other wackos around the world got together and made a group because there's 56,000 of them in the entire world. They seem to think that they're a force now. Great. (laughs) That's what you have to deal with in 20 years. Enjoy. There's your knowledge of the future. This guy's name is Mark Zuckerberg. Here's his address. You might want to do something (laughs) about it. Don't kick him in the shins. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so... (laughs) Wow, what a strange man. Uh, who the hell was that? Did he just say the earth was flat? What an idiot. <laughs> I can look that up on my Encarta disc right now. Yeah. I can disprove him. <laughs> Hold on, I have to wait for my Windows ME computer to start. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my Windows ME computer. How it would blue screen for no reason all the time. Mm. Those were fun, frustrating days. I remember those days. Yes. Windows ME, the worst of the system. Yes. Garbage. Hot garbage. (laughs) Uh, But speaking of uh, things from days gone by, perhaps we should take this time to then properly look back on better things from days gone by and uh, transition into the blast from the past, the portion of the show where we take a few minutes to fet some items that are celebrating milestone anniversaries that are mildly interesting, or at least interesting to us. Perhaps they are interesting to you. We have two items, both of them game-related. That's, a, that's an operative word there, game-related. Uh, one of them is 15 years old, the other is 10 years old, and both notable in their own right for entirely different reasons. So, of the two, where do you think we should start this time. I think we can start with the newer of the two items. Um, partially because I feel like there's less to talk about for the, this one. Um, but also partially because it's sort of like, this one I feel had a, had less of an, less of a immediate impact on pop culture in general. I think that's fair. I think the idea was was there. It, it was an interesting idea, but the execution didn't really 
uh, work out that well because on, uh, the, because the item we were talking about came out, out on November 4th, 2010 for the Xbox 360. It's not a game. And this is a rare occasion where we are speaking about a game peripheral, an accessory for your system. In this case, it was for the Xbox 360 and it was the Microsoft Kinect. Not connect. Yeah, Kinect. K-I-N-E-C-T. As in kinetics, uh, motion, uh, and whatnot. So Kinect was a device, it looked like a uh, sensor bar that would uh, be placed either on top of or underneath your TV, and it had a very elaborate camera sensor array inside that would be able to look, see, and detect movement and motion and that would translate into controls for whatever game and or also your Microsoft system. Yeah. So, so Microsoft was really all in on this thing back then. Yeah. If you ever saw the movie Minority Report, which I didn't, but I saw some scenes from that movie, obviously, that were that people would reference. Basically, they the guys in that movie had like personal heads up displays for things. That would just kind of project out in front of them. And while that's not what Kinect is, the the actual interface for interacting with these things, like, you know, swiping your hands and, you know, clicking on items and like basically just grabbing items with your hand and moving mm-hmm. them around and whatever else, that was sort of like the basis of the interface when using your Xbox with Kinect. Now, I mean, Kinect was... A neat idea, because at the time we were sort of like just coming down from the high of like the Wii, the original Wii, when it was, you know, first came out in 2006, and, you know, like the the buzz of the motion controls and stuff, it kind of died down, and people started thinking of it as a bit of a gimmick, and, you know, it was like a little bit annoying with like always still needing to be tethered to something with your hands and I mean, PlayStation had come out, I think they'd come out with Move at that point. Mm-hmm. So, and the iToy camera. Yeah, and the iToy camera. So, like, it, the idea of motion controls wasn't far off at this point now. You know, there was controllers that would move around and, you know, they would track your movement. So, like, you know, you can move your hands around and it would represent stuff happening on screen, but you still need to be holding a controller. Mm-hmm. So, the Connect was kind of interesting in that you became the controller. You no longer needed to hold something, and I believe they had a 3D, basically, like, breakout as a a demo for this, where, you know, there'd be... You'd basically be the representation of a person at the start of a hallway, and then you'd basically be, like, throwing a ball, kind of like breakout, at a wall at the end of the hallway to try to break pieces and stuff off, and then, you know, as the ball would come back, you'd have to kind of, like, run towards the ball and slap it with your hand or block it with your body or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And it looked kind of fun. It still looked like a novelty. Like, to be honest, all of these things are still kind of novelties. Like, at the core, we like, this isn't how we want to play video games. No. I Like, I've said this once. I'm going to say this a million times. We still want to, you know, interact with things through buttons and, like, sit down and just kind of in, have a, you know, semi- you know, engaging experience, you know, with with a real screen and stuff. Like, we don't... It's supposed to be a semi-lazy experience for your body. <laughs> like, it's true. It's supposed to be relaxing. Like, like there are other games and stuff out there that, you know, get you moving and stuff, but you have to kind of, like, 
recognize that they are a different type of experience to a typical video game. But anyways, this was still in that time when, you know, people were still maybe hopeful that this was the next big thing. And spoiler alert, it wasn't the next big thing. What? <laughs> yes. However, it was, it was an interesting thing. It, it lasted for a while. I, there was a few. There, there was like two or three versions of it for the Xbox. Um, but interestingly enough, I was just kind of going through the timeline of this and they're actually, they relaunched, uh, Kinect last year under the Azure banner. Really? Meant for, um, artificial intelligence. Well, on the Wikipedia page, it just basically says the Azure Connect is a developer kit, well, DK anyways, a developer kit and PC peripheral, which employs the use of artificial intelligence sensors for computer vision and speech models, which is the successor to Microsoft Connect line of sensors. It's now connected to the Microsoft Azure Cloud. It's based on the depth sensors presented during the 2018 ISSCC, um, blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, while the previous iterations of Kinect were focused on gaming, this device is aimed at broad-based enterprise users and also targets uh, other markets such as logis- logistics, robotics, healthcare, and retail. Uh, with the kit, developers are expected to develop corporate applications uh, connected to Microsoft's cloud and AI technologies. So, yeah, basically, like, whatever. There's things to try to let you create software with virtual reality experiences and with Things like that, whatever. Tried to like engage more in like the corporate side of things. Which so I'm, being used for business applications. Yeah. So Connect is still going, but it's very interesting that like they had this like gaming start that just kind of didn't really go in the way that they wanted. But yeah, it's it's kind of interesting how it's happened this way. But yeah, I, I don't know anyone that had a Connect. I don't think. And, and in no small part because the software that would support the Connect and use the Connect uh, looked like garbage. There was, uh, I recall, Connectimals, uh, a kid-centric, kid-friendly, animal-based game. Uh, the title that really stands out to me from that time was the Star Wars Dance Game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where you would uh, basically... It was a Star Wars-based version of something like a Just Dance rhythm dancing game where you'd move around and... Uh, basically dance along to the patterns and beats and try to replicate what you would see done on screen, except with Star Wars characters and Star Wars scenarios. And it was an absolute affront to the franchise, to just the entire property and world of Star Wars that had been created and cultivated through so many decades of properties, of movie properties, television uh, properties, uh, novels, uh, and whatever, and just the fan base. And this was just an outright... I don't want to say slapped to the face, but more just a straight, you know, three studios style double poke to the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, you know, have your character of Darth Vader just dancing around in whatever scenario or C3PO or something like that. Stupid as all hell. If you enjoyed the game, that's fine, but I'm sure you can also understand how it would not be widely received. And that was. I guess the general problem with motion controls, rare was the occasion when a developer or a game would actually manage to make good use of motion controls, be it for the uh, for a game on the Wii, be it for the Kinect, be it for the PlayStation I. You know, a lot of the times, the majority majority of those games that would have motion controls, gesture controls, involved just wild swinging and flailing of arms. Yeah, and that's all it was. Yeah. 
There's no nuance, which is my problem with a lot of these things. Like, I mean, I'd be all for, you know, no controller or just using your hands or whatever to play video games if they brought the nuance of, like, simple button pressing and, like, joystick moving and stuff. Like, I don't want to have big grand gestures for literally everything I have to do. Like, like that... Anyways, that's a whole other discussion that we don't really need to get into here. But, yeah, that's... uh, and I recall in the, you know, lead up to the release of the Kinect, Don Matrick, who was president of the Xbox division of Microsoft at the time, was really all about this, really pushing it hard. And I assume this was, uh, or my impression is, this was really just Microsoft seeing the success that Nintendo had with the Wii, figuring the big selling point was the motion controls. And they thought, hey, we can do that, but we can do it better because yeah. we're a tech company. Let's tech this solution and they did, and the result was Kinect. Yeah. Which, as a piece of tech, it was impressive. Yeah, it was impressive. Like, it worked way better than any other motion technology that I saw at the time, admittedly. Like, it did look like it worked way better. Like, it was just kind of undeniably looked cool. It was a lot more uh, involved than what the Wii's motion sensor was. The Wii's motion sensor was just two infrared sensors. Yeah. Pretty much. Just responding to a sensor in the, or I believe light emitted from the Wii remote. Yeah. That's it. And there was a lot more cameras, a lot more depth perception, motion perception available in the Kinect, which was all fine and dandy, but did not uh, translate to good gameplay experiences. So the Kinect, just an interesting little uh, uh, nugget of gaming history from that time. Yeah, mid to uh, mid to late two thousands slash early twenty tens. Yeah, which uh, we know all about because we were there. We lived it. This program was there. It was yes. <laughs> this program turns fifteen in February. Indeed. <laughs> FYI, we're not young. No, no, we're not. And we we I say we were there. We lived it as we move on to our next ludicrous lead off here, which uh, is a game that started a whole sensation. I mean, as motion controls were a fad, they came at, uh, as the previous fad really burned out yeah, uh, and gave way to motion controls. The previous fad was music games and all started with this one that was released on the PlayStation 2 way back on November 8th of the year 2005. We speak of the very first game in this franchise, Guitar Hero. Yes, Guitar Hero. That started the whole music game thing, the whole plastic instruments taking up tons of space in probably a disappointing number of garbage dumps. And landfills now. Yeah. And or pawn shops, uh, used game stores, uh, whatever the case might be. Yeah, thrift stores. You, I, I mean, I've definitely seen piles of Guitar Hero controllers mm-hmm. in various places, in unexpected places. Because it's like... Everyone had Guitar Hero, and then everyone got really bored of Guitar Hero, and then everyone got rid of Guitar Hero. That was the arc of Guitar Hero. It burned out, and it faded away. Yeah, really fast. Like, it was really, like, don't get me wrong, Guitar Hero and Guitar Hero 2, when they first came out, fun. Really fun. Absolutely. I played a lot of Guitar Hero when it first came out. And hell, even the first rock band when it came out was a fun different thing too because, oh, it adds a drum kit and a microphone? Hell yeah. Now it's like a, I'm a real band. Yeah. I or mean, I'm in a real band. Yeah. For those of us who yeah, weren't in real yeah, bands. Yeah, for those of us who weren't 
I mean, even for those of us who were in real bands, it was like, you know, it's fun. It's like, okay, I can just kind of goof off musically with some of my friends. Like, hey, I want to see me get 97% in painkiller on vocals? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is always, was a fun party trick to pull off at the time, just being, you know, that. But yeah, it's like, it's a fun, it was fun for a while. But then, like all good things that make money, that have big companies attached to them, the big company tries to recapture the lightning in the bottle 200 more times mm-hmm. in short succession to try to make as much money as possible. If Guitar Hero became like was a platform to start with, like if if it was just a if they figured out a way earlier on of how to just release song packs, it would have been less offensive. But what they ended up doing was they released a whole new iteration of the game, basically two to three times a year for like three years. Yeah, that's really what killed it. I mean, uh, the following year there was Guitar Hero 2 and Guitar Hero 3. Okay, cool. Oh, it was more than two to three times a year. Like, uh, yeah, I I think actually... Like, at its height, you got like three or four copies of a Guitar Hero game. Uh, and they would be band specific. Yeah, like there was the Metallica one, the Aerosmith one, the Green Day. Green Day. Then there was on the rock band side of things too, which also helped because there was two competing platforms that were just basically like volleying fire at each other back and forth. And, you know, while Guitar Hero had their fair share of games, rock band also basically had the same number of games that were being released. Like they had, you know, rock band, the Beatles and like, few other ones as well. Like, so there was all these different band specific games coming out. And then, yeah, it just, it literally got to a point where it's just like, Oh, guitar hero Van Halen. Yeah. That was which, one too. Which of course makes sense. Like, yeah, but yeah, it's like, it gets to a point when you're like, okay, another one of these games. Great. What songs are on this one? Okay. I don't really care about most of these songs, whatever. Fine. So that's it. <laughs> it's like, you're like, how many more full games are you going to release? Like, it feels to me like Guitar Hero would have had a lot more lasting power if it would have come out in maybe this current generation mm-hmm. of DLC and everything, where you just release the game as a platform, basically. And then you can release song packs, which is what they're doing now with, you know, the more recent iterations of Guitar Hero, which I... The latest one, Guitar Hero Live, I think it was, mm-hmm. was, it was okay. Like, it was a fun throwback and fun to play it after I, you know, hadn't played Guitar Hero in several years. But, yeah, man, it was, like, literally, <laughs> it was way overkill. Way overkill. I'd be interested to see, perhaps this study is out there, uh, or if not, this gives someone the idea to tackle it, but examine and study the environmental impact of the music game craze from the mid to late 2000s. I feel like that would be a very depressing thing to watch unfold as a study. Because there is a lot of plastic produced for everything involved. Initially, it was yeah. just the guitars, and then there are different models of guitars. And then in subsequent, uh, with each you know new game, such as Guitar Hero 2, Guitar Hero 3, there'd be new models of guitars. And third-party companies would have their own guitars. Yeah. And... Different, you needed a different, uh, different guitar for each console. And sometimes you needed multiple guitars because you wanted to play it two player or four player, whatever the case mm-hmm. was. 
And then in some of these cases, you needed the guitars, but you also needed the drum kit, and you also needed an extra mic, and you needed this, and you needed that. And then, yeah, there was other, like, offshoot-type games as well. Like, there was also, like... DJ Sing- Hero. DJ Hero, SingStar, whatever else. Like, one of my siblings had DJ Hero, and it was... It was, like, a super easy Guitar Hero, and, like, I just didn't understand. I'm like, what are they saying with this? Like, <laughs> that it's easy to be a DJ? Yeah, like, is that all they're saying? There's no talent involved? <laughs> is it just really one big troll of the uh, electronic music music scene? <laughs> it's like, was it worth putting on all these, like, plastic, like, fake turntables, though? Uh, even uh-oh. even in uh, portable versions of Guitar Hero, I believe there was a Game Boy Advance and then later DS versions, there'd be a plastic uh, appendage that would connect into uh, one of these slots on your portable device, and you'd have to wrap your hand around. Yeah. And, again, a plastic concoction released with the game as well, a plastic attachment for the game. So everything had a cost to this. And and we're not just talking, like, financial costs. No, they were expensive, too. Yeah, they were, but, like, also environmentally, plastic's not good to have out there in the world. Like, we know this now. Plastic is a terrible thing. Plastic lasts forever. And, yeah, that's not a good thing. We knew it back then, too. Yeah. we. It's just becoming even more crystallized now, just how bad it is. Like, that toxic garbage island, basically, Mm -hmm. that's in one of the oceans. Like, it's like, it's awful. And that's like, all this did was like, greatly contribute to that now it was a lot of fun to get together at people's houses have band nights guitar hero nights rock band nights or not cool but um it was a novelty game that really hit and it caught like wildfire i think more so than anyone could have imagined either well yeah exactly like it, it was it was really quite a thing and uh uh i i'm I know it surprised me, it surprised you, uh, but yeah, it was really easy to get caught up in that, and um, everyone had the games back then. I think I still have in a closet somewhere, you know, my guitar from Guitar Hero 2, and I have, of course, all the games on PlayStation 2. I mean, I don't want to throw it away, because that's wasteful. Yeah, it's wasteful. I mean, like, you still technically could hook it up to a TV and stuff now, but like, you know, as as you probably know, anyone that's moved more than once, you're like, oh, God, do I need to move all this crap again? And then, like, once you got it, like, you know, like, there's only so much, like, you know, shelf space you want to devote to currently hooked up systems. Mm-hmm. You know, as an, as an adult person with a living room, you know, that might not have, like, the quote-unquote, like, nerd cave or whatever you want to call it in their basement, necessarily. It's like, how many of these systems do I want set up? How elaborate of a cord management do I need to worry about all this stuff and like for me it's like yeah I don't really have the room to hook up all that stuff now so it's just like okay it's just more plastic garbage just in a closet somewhere mm-hmm. I mean I'd, I'd give it to Goodwill but that just moves the problem somewhere else so it's like well so they can sell it for five bucks uh, as they've done with every other plastic instrument that has come their way too yeah or they just throw it out and that also contributes to the problem. It's like, mm-hmm. well, you're just moving trash around, so it's like, well, what do you do? 
So hopefully the positive uptake, at least from this, was one, uh, if you were around back in the Guitar Hero craze, you had fun and enjoyed the, the moment of it, and perhaps in the wake of it, maybe that inspired you to take up the guitar proper. Yeah. Because there were games uh, in this craze of music games that would try to have a more authentic guitar experience. Yeah, like Rocksmith. Yes. Rocksmith is, I think, the, the positive... Um, offshoot of the Guitar Hero franchise where you needed a real electric guitar. You'd plug a real electric guitar in to a dongle that would plug into your computer. I think it actually might have been on actual consoles as well. I believe so, if I recall. Yeah, but like you needed an actual electric guitar, but it would show you the actual proper fingers where you'd place your actual fingers on the screen and like would teach you actual songs and give you actual practical experience playing an electric guitar. And that's that's valuable. It sure is. Like, that's a real skill. Like, playing a musical instrument is a real skill. Like, once you know, like, a few power chords and stuff, you're kind of on your way to the races there. So, like, that that's all you really need to do, like, just to get up and started with a real instrument. Like, like, <laughs> like Guitar Hero, like, it, it is impressive. Like, I'm not going to say, like, you shouldn't play Guitar Hero or anything like that. There is always value if you're having fun doing something, obviously. Like, that'd be ridiculous to say otherwise, but still, like, (laughs) I always think of the Guitar Hero episode of South Park, where, you know, like, the the kids are all, like, playing Guitar Hero and, like, super interested, and Randy Marsh gets all excited because he sees them, like, really trying to nail Carry On Wayward Son, and he brings (laughs) out his real guitar, and he starts playing it. And he just starts singing in front of all of them. I'm going to show you boys something cool. And he starts playing Carry On Wayward Son. And they're all like super embarrassed looking at him. And he's like, he just doesn't understand. It's like, but I'm playing the real song. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) It just, and then they have that scene where the, the kid at the restaurant and like, he just basically jumps up on a table and just starts clicking the buttons on the controller. And everyone looks at him. They're like, whoa. (laughs) It's just like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, not, no one in real life is going to have that reaction to that game. Like, that's ridiculous. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Guitar Hero, not analogous to real guitar. No. No. Th- there's no red, green, yellow, orange uh, on a guitar. No, I mean, there could be. You could put tape and stuff. I've seen, I've seen various guitar learning systems people have put up on the internet and stuff, and with whatever varying degrees of success, but... Yeah. Anyway, all that aside, like, it's still a fun game. Like, I got a lot of fun out of playing the first couple of Guitar Heroes anyway. Like, it's fun, like, just to kind of hang out and just have your turn at the plastic controller and see how badly you mess up that Dragon Force song like everyone else tries. Oh, yes. Uh, Through the Fire and the Flames. One last quick mention of the original. Was it Guitar Hero 1 or 2 that basically launched Dragon Force into mass uh, awareness in North America? It might have been the second one because I think the big long song that they had at the end of the first one was Freebird. Okay, yes. Like, the big impossible song is, you essentially are working your way through the, uh, uh, basically at the mountain of songs, if you will, and the boss song would always be one of the most goddamn impossible things in, in the challenge, in the progression of the game. So, uh, Freebird makes sense, you know, it's a, it's a diff, you know, it can be a difficult song. Also just a test of endurance as well as you're playing it through. Well, yeah. And Through the Fire and Flames is just ex, uh, extreme metal, 
uh, that uh, was made popular by Dragon Force, although really, really, you know, took off in this in the Guitar Hero games. So, uh, and made Dragon Force a more household name uh, in many houses that had the Guitar Hero game that uh, their song was featured on. So. Yeah, that was kind of a staple of that. And then I can't recall what was in Guitar Hero 3, Legends of Rock. Um, possibly, well, I'd imagine they had Kiss songs and whatnot. But, so, Guitar Hero, uh, yeah, it basically worked like a, uh, if you will, a career path, where you'd start off very simple songs, easy to do, um, and then just worked its way through incremental difficulty that way. But also had a, at times, the games had, some of the games did have good diverse song selections to them, too. Yeah, well, actually, I'm looking through the the song list for the first Guitar Hero, and um, yeah, it was like, I mean, it was hard rock and metal mostly, but yeah, like a, a good a good selection of things. And actually, I was mistaken. The Tier Six Face Melters songs in the first one were uh, Godzilla by Blue Oyster Cult, Texas Flood by Stevie Ray Vaughan, Frankenstein by the Edgar, Edgar Winter Group. Cowboys from Hell by Pantera and Bark at the Moon by Ozzy Osbourne. Nice. So I, I do remember that. Um, it might have been Guitar Hero 2 that I played the most, uh, which, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of songs. Oh and, yeah. You know, <laughs> but yeah, um, good selection of songs for sure. Yeah. Whoever was, uh, doing the licensing for these songs, uh, on the part of Activision, uh, really had a respect and wanted a uh, diverse assortment uh, uh, of songs to go through instead of just, you know, ones you hear on on uh, on rock radio really all the time. So uh, kudos to them. They were uh, music fans, guitar fans as well. And Guitar Hero, just a very, very specific moment in gaming history. I think we can say that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very as, much so. as motion controls were from a very specific point in time, so were uh, music games and Guitar Hero started it all back on November 8th of the year 2005. And before that, we spoke of the Microsoft Connect trying to cash in on the popularity of motion controls and Microsoft thinking that they can tech the answer to motion controls for the Xbox 360. That came out on November 4th of the year 2010. It's 10 years old. And now used for business applications. Indeed. It's, it's matured and uh, now wears a suit and tie. Yeah, it, it got a real job and it now works with Excel spreadsheets, you know, at the office. And it, you know, has lunch with Stacy from HR. And, Absolutely. You know, it, it schedules meetings and it actually, you know, does, you know, does cold calls from time to time to, you know, just to do client outreach for, you know, various, uh, you know, corporate uh Reasons. It organizes the, uh, uh, the team's birthday celebrations and cake in the lunchroom. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he, they go to the store and get the card and then pass it around and make sure everyone's signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's Derek's uh, birthday upcoming this week. So now <laughs> uh, make sure you sign that card too. I uh, don't want to, don't want to miss you on that. Uh, and don't want uh, Derek to notice your name's not on there. So yeah, cake will be about, uh, I believe two o'clock in the, uh, in the lunchroom. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that is Connect, and that's what it's up to these days. Uh, and what we're up to is getting on out of here, and we thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and children of all ages. We hope you enjoyed this program as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. 
which I don't think that's possible. We always have our own share of fun that you don't see when we're not recording. Well, you can't see anyways. This is an audio medium. What yeah. am I talking about? <laughs> there, there's fun that's not always recorded. You know, we get to hang out and stuff as well, you know. Exactly. Outtakes yes. are the best takes. <laughs> uh, if, uh, as I said earlier, if you're a game developer who's crunching away on this, uh, on Cyberpunk 2077 and have tales to tell about the crunch you're under, or just a developer who's got some uh, years under the belt in game development uh, and can speak to the challenges of bugs now versus the challenges of bugs from yesteryear, you can let us know and uh, share your thoughts on the topic. Info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up through social media. We are at The Arcade Show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. Uh, we will share your tale if you want to share it anonymously. And uh, we, we're we interested to hear what you have to say if you have something to say like that. And if you are out there and haven't done so already, which I find hard to believe, but just a reminder in case you haven't, subscribe to our program on both iTunes and Google Play Podcast. Links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So until next time, good night. Good night. Good night.